Hi, everybody. Tim Anderson here. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today. In this podcast, we're going to discuss boilerplate. Is it necessary for your reports, or is it just an opportunity to chat with the members of your state appraisal board? As we talk about boilerplate, we have to understand that, yes, it has a place in appraisal without question. It does save time. It does save money. It does save effort. A certain consistency is a plus in writing appraisal reports. And a well-written boilerplate can help the report to read more clearly. Those are all the advantages of boilerplate. But let's take a look at some of the disadvantages of boilerplate, which is what I want to talk about in this podcast. If boilerplate functions as a summary of critical thinking and analysis, then it's fine. Go ahead and use it. However, it's common that boilerplate replaces the summary of critical thinking and analysis with mere generic phrases with no support with no assignment-specific or subject-specific report or significance. That's the problem. Let me give you a for instance. This is a common example in many appraisal reports. Quote, the intended use of the appraisal report is to evaluate the property subject to the reporting requirements of this appraisal report form. Unquote. Now, everybody probably uses that. Unfortunately, The reporting form is not part of an appraisal's scope of work. Scope of work refers only to the appraisal, standard one. Scope of work is not part of reporting, which is standard two. This statement, therefore, is misleading, and to include it just gives the lender the opportunity to throw you under the bus. Therefore, that particular boilerplate is boilerplate you really want to avoid. Another one is the Fannie Mae appraiser independence requirements. Now, a lot of appraisers put in their reports that the report was done in conformance to Fannie Mae's appraiser independence requirements. Unfortunately, there aren't any. There are no appraiser independence requirements for us. The appraiser independence requirements are for the lender. Therefore, to include them is misleading. It shows a misunderstanding of what Fannie Mae requires in an appraisal report. Therefore, it's best to avoid them. Leave that boilerplate out. Here's another one. Quote, the adjustments conform to USPAP guidelines, unquote. That would be wonderful if there indeed were USPAP guidelines for adjustments. There aren't. In fact, you will look in vain in Standards 1 and 2 for the words adjust, adjustment, or adjustments. They don't appear until AO13. USPAP does not require you to adjust anything at any time for any reason Therefore, your adjustments cannot conform to USPAP guidelines. There aren't any. Adjustments are a Fannie Mae construct. So you probably want to take that boilerplate out of your report. Here is another one. The highest and best use boilerplate. Highest and best use in USPAP occupies Standard Rule 1-3 and Standard Rule 2-2A10. 
Standard Rule 1-3 tells you what Fannie Mae and USPAP look for in highest and best use. There are five components. Then, Standard 2-2A10 specifically says the appraiser has the ethical responsibility to summarize within the appraisal report itself the support and rationale the appraiser has for the highest and best use conclusion. If you look at the highest and best use boilerplate that's already in your report, you'll see it does not cover the five items that highest and best use analysis is supposed to cover according to Standard Rule 1-3A, nor does it present a summary of the support and rationale you had, you developed, for your highest and best use conclusion. It can't. Your highest and best use conclusion is assignment specific and subject specific. The software vendors can't write that for you. Only you can. Highest and best use analysis is low-hanging fruit. State boards like to jump all over that. So please, take a look at your highest and best use boilerplate. It's okay to start with that. It's okay to end with that. But somewhere within that boilerplate has got to be a summary of your support and rationale for your highest and best use conclusions. Notice I say conclusions. That's because there are at least two in every report, the subject as if vacant and the subject as improved. And if the appraisal does not conform to 1-3A and B for that matter, and the report does not conform to 2-2A, that's a USPAP violation and states are likely going to jump all over that one. Another potential boilerplate issue is days on market versus exposure time. Days on market is generic to the market itself. Exposure time, however, is specific to the subject. Just because the standard days on market is 95 days doesn't mean that applies to the subject. It just means that's what's common in the neighborhood. Let me give you an example. Suppose your property were a geodesic dome house. Is that going to sell quickly? If you think about it, no, it's not, unless it's priced at more or less the land value. The reason for this is because the market generally isn't buying geodesic homes, especially if there's only one in the neighborhood of 5,000 other houses. So while the market may indicate for the typical home, the days, the exposure time, the days on market is 95 days, that doesn't mean the exposure time is going to be that time limit for your subject if your subject is atypical for the market. That is an analysis the state is going to look for as it goes through your appraisal report. Therefore, it's of a benefit to you to understand that when it comes to days on market and exposure time, they're not the same thing. Days on market is rather generic to the market. Exposure time is specific to the subject. Another one is a common boilerplate relative to the income and the cost approaches. Appraisers, for some reason, don't like to use them. Granted, they're pretty rotten at coming up with value conclusions, but their beauty lies in their ability to serve as a check and a balance on the sales comparison approach. The fact that no properties in the neighborhood are rented doesn't mean the income approach does not apply. It just means that none of the properties in the neighborhood are rented. Therefore, 
what it means is what would the property rent for if it were held for rent? Let's face it. You could buy any one of your subject properties and hold it out as a rental. Probably the reason you don't is because you don't think it would rent for enough to cover the principal, interest, taxes, insurance, expenses, etc., 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 and still provide you with a decent rate of return. That doesn't mean the income approach is not applicable. It is. It just means that the market doesn't buy and sell those types of properties based on their ability to produce an income. Therefore, one of the beauties of the income approach is relative to highest and best use. If you do an income approach and it comes in at $275,000, but the sales comparison approach comes in at $325,000, what you have just proven out of the market is that the highest and best use of the improved property is not to be bought as an income-producing property. Rather, it's to be bought and sold between retail buyers and retail sellers. Therefore, you can say truthfully that the market doesn't support using the subject as an income property, and you know that as a surety because you have proven it out of the market. And remember, Standard Rule 2-3A makes it very clear, and this is a quote, I certify that, to the best of my knowledge and belief, the statements of fact in this appraisal report are true and correct. Therefore, it's ethically impossible to say the income approach does not apply until you go through the motions of doing the income approach to indeed prove that it does not apply in a particular assignment. Remember, it's assignment-specific and it's subject-specific. In many reports, we find redundant statements. This is what I mean. The appraiser will write a scope of work. Then somewhere else in the report is the boilerplate scope of work. Why have both? There's nothing wrong with having both other than the redundancy. The problem comes when the two scopes of work conflict Therefore, since one of them has to be right, since one of them has to be a summary of what it is the appraiser did to arrive at a credible value conclusion, the other one, by definition, has to be wrong. And if it's wrong, why is it in the report? If it's wrong, it's misrepresentative, it's misleading, and USPAP climbs all over that. And so do state boards. Now, let's get to our conclusions. It's okay to use boilerplate properly. It saves time. It saves money. It saves effort. However, if boilerplate is not assignment specific, if it's not subject specific, is its use misleading? You really want to avoid that. Does its inclusion make the report any more persuasive and convincing? If it doesn't, there's no reason to include it. Ask yourself this question. Does a boilerplate provide a concise, precise summary of the appraisal scope of work that brought the appraisal to a credible value conclusion? If not, why is it in the report? This is Tim Anderson, the appraiser's advocate. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it very much. I'm glad to be with you. If you need to get in touch with me, please contact me, Tim at theappraisersadvocate.com. It'll be an honor to work with you and a pleasure to hear from you. My best to you and your family. And we're clear. Oh, by the way, are your professional fees professional and high enough?